is the Mulberry Lane Show. The Mulberry Lane Show. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Now, here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. It's the weekend. It's time to get in touch with your creative side, and that means it's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. You make time for your radio sisters every weekend. It's Rachel here with Bo and Allie. Yes, we know there's a lot of places and a lot of choices of where you guys could be spending your time right now. So we're happy you're right here with us. We promise to make it worth your while. Mm-hmm. We have a unique show set up for you today. We've got an album centered around the dulcimer. We have a lute player and an ukulele player. Gotta love those strings. Half strings will play. <laughs> we're not going to string you along anymore. We're going to get to those guests. Right now. <laughs> the Mulberry Lane shows on. Celebrity story songs. You're gonna have it going on when we tell you who's stopping by now. Up first today, you're gonna meet Bruce Hornsby. Listen to the whose career has defied musical genres. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. From pop to rock, jazz to bluegrass, this multi-platinum artist has had three Grammys. Mm-hmm, and all in different genres. From the way it is in 1986 to his latest album, Rehab Reunion, Bruce is going to tell you about 30 years in the music business. Yeah, and this includes stories about his musical friendship with Jerry Garcia, some behind-the-scenes stories about Bonnie Rayet, and an encounter he had with Donald Trump. You're also going to hear about his songwriting process, and you'll get to know Bruce, the musician. Yes, a definite gem of the show today. Yep, Rachel. Okay, then it's ukulele virtuoso Jake Shimabukuro. Now, you've met him here before, so today you're going to catch up with Jake and his latest release. And this time, Jake and his ukulele travel to Nashville to record this album called Nashville Sessions. So you're going to hear some pretty cool behind-the-scenes stories, and Jake also shares what this humble little instrument has taught him. Allie. Okay, well then we go from the ukulele to the lute. Grammy-nominated lutenist Ron McFarlane brings the lute, the most popular instrument of the Renaissance, into today's music scene. Now, today Ron talks about the many musical colors you can get on the lute and how he's used this instrument to play a lot of modern pieces as well. So, pretty cool, you guys. Today, a show full of stringed instruments. String theory. (laughs) Exactly. The dulcimer, the lute, and the ukulele. And before we come back with Bruce Hornsby, Allie, you had a little situation with the neighbor this week, right? Oh, I did. It was one of those situations where someone says something wrong and you're not quite sure if you should correct them or not. And of course, I did not. Okay. (laughs) Sounds just like you, Allie. So this neighbor of mine who walks by our house a lot with his dog, he's super friendly. My kids and I were in the front yard and he said, hi, Allie. Hi, Luke. 
And instead of calling my daughter Clover, he said, hi, Cotton. <laughs> so obviously at that point, I realized that he thought my daughter's name was Cotton and it's Clover. And you guys know me. I, of course, just like didn't know what to say. So I just sidestepped it, glossed it over. And I was like, how are you doing? And, and then we chatted for a little bit and then he went on his merry way. And, but when he left, Luke said to me, mom, did you hear him call Clover Cotton? And I was like, yeah, I did. So guys, now it's even more awkward because he's either going to continue to call her Cotton or I'm going to have to say something. But these situations are always like weird and hard for me. I don't know why. Get Luke to do it. <laughs> Next time have Luke say, her name is Clover. And then it'll be a kid saying it. You won't have to step outside your comfort zone and problem solve. Okay, maybe that's what I should do. All right. Get your kid to do the dirty work. All right. Well, there'll be no wrong name calling on today's show. We can even say Jake Shimabukuro, right? Shimabukuro. <laughs> maybe not. Right back with Bruce Hornsby. We can't say that one. Stay right there on the Mulberry Lane Show. Brought to you by Brannock Finnegan Dermatology. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. You're about to meet an artist whose career has defied musical genres, from pop to rock, jazz to bluegrass. Bruce Hornsby leaves the mark of a master wherever he goes, and he has the Grammys to prove it. From the way it is in 1986 to his latest album, Rehab Reunion, Bruce stops by now to chat 30 years in the music biz. Welcome Welcome to the show, Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> That's new for me. I've never been sung onto a show. I do have the Grammy losses to prove it also. I'm a 10-time Grammy loser, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got to count the ones that you won. You have three, right? Three for 13. It's not a very good batting average. No, <laughs> but they're in different genres, too. So not a whole lot of people can say that. I guess we'll say. That's probably true. Yes, all over the map. <laughs> Just when they think they've got me pegged, I move somewhere else. That's right. You moved to the dulcimer. The Appalachian dulcimer. You switched from piano to dulcimer for this album. People might be surprised by that. Yeah, no question. But I think that's a good thing. I think there are a lot of people out there who want their sort of heroes or their favorites in music to basically never change and sound the same forever. So I'm the wrong guy for that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the dulcimer, it really spoke to you on not just a musical level, but also an emotional level. So talk about how, you know, you've been playing this instrument for a number of years, but you've turned over the whole album to the dulcimer. Well, I'm really terrible at it, for one thing. (laughs) So that limits me, my lack of ability, but also just the nature of the instrument. It's a diatonic instrument, meaning sort of on the piano, only the white notes, not the black notes. So... Again, you're very limited in that way, and so it forces one to write simple music, and that's never a bad thing. On the piano, as I get older, I've moved into a rather adventurous area, influenced by modern classical music, which is very chromatic and very dissonant and adventurous, and not for everybody. But I like writing simple songs. I just don't tend to gravitate toward that on the piano at this point in my life. So that brought that out of you. 
It, yeah, exactly right, because that's all you can do on it. And yes, I played guitar when I was a kid. I was a little sixth grade kid having my little kitty rock band playing Hey, Hey, You, You, Get Off My Cloud on the Rolling Stones, <laughs> that sort of thing, yeah. for sock hops and battle, battles of the bands. But yeah, so the dulcimer uh, brings me back to that very simple area, so I really liked that. So I just started writing songs on it. It was really sort of sending me. I like when I write. I'm always looking for inspiration, looking for the chill, right. you know, the goosebump moment. And uh, I was getting that, not infrequently, on the dulcimer. Okay. So yeah, even though I'm terrible at it, uh, it doesn't stop me. So now, the fact that you say that you're terrible at it, do you think that's actually a plus for you? Because it kind of makes you feel like you're a freshman at this and maybe ideas come to you more like a beginning of a career? That could be accurate. I've never thought about it that way. But yes, it's possible. Sometimes I write music on the Delphine that's kind of difficult for me to play. Okay. song on the new record, the first song, Over the Rise, which features uh, Justin Vernon from Bonnie Vare singing backgrounds with me. And there's a part where the bridge is pretty difficult for me to play. Okay. So I have to practice that. So I'm not up there just sucking my ass off in front of the people. <laughs> You're actually working hard and thinking up there. See, I really have to concentrate for that one and, and practice it. Yeah. But, uh, otherwise, I'm writing things that I can play. And so, again, that guards against complexity. Singer-songwriter Bruce Hornsby here on the Mulberry Lane Show. You produced this album also, so did you have to employ new recording techniques or things that would always work with the piano? You had to switch it up and do things completely differently because the dulcimer was the instrument. No, really, we had this whole area sort of mapped out because we've been doing this dulcimer music on our live concerts for a long time. In 2009, we came out with a record called Levitate. That's a song on there called Prairie Dog Town, which was the first song I'd written on the dulcimer. We started playing more and more dulcimer music, and it became a very popular part of our concerts. We really knew what to do, so it was just my band, The Noisemakers, so it's very organ-centric. Okay. And uh, a fiddle mandolin. I got a guy who plays fiddle mandolin. He's played with Mumford & Sons, Ross Holmes, great mm-hmm. player. So I got him in the band, and drummer Sonny Emery played washboard on at least half the songs. And we kind of knew we'd arranged it all. We had this little area that we carved out. So okay. as a producer of the record, this was just about capturing some good performances. It's a pretty live-sounding record, I feel. Mm-hmm. So is your writing process different on the dulcimer than on the piano? Yeah, there's no rule uh, on the piano or the dulcimer. I'll yeah. be fooling around with something. And uh, for instance, I've written piano songs on the piano in so many different ways. I've written them lyrics first, music first. I've collaborated with other lyricists. I've given them music that they've written the lyrics to, or they've given me lyrics that I write music later. Don Henley, I gave him a track, and he wrote The End of the Innocence over that track. Okay. Robert Hutter, the, the great Grateful Dead lyricist, we've written several songs together, one of which is on this record, Rehab Reunion. And uh, well, the first time I wrote with him, he just got in touch with me out of the blue and asked me if I wanted to write with him. Of course, the answer was yes. I love his songwriting. The Garcia Hunter songs are so great. So he had sent him a track, and so I did, and he wrote to that. But then subsequently, he sent me lyrics, and I wrote music to them so all different ways all different ways and you also played on Bonnie Raitt's single Can't Make You Love Me I Can't Make You Love Me that's right I changed the songwriter's chords around I've never met him and he's a big former NFL player so I'm glad I've never met him because maybe he would beat me up because he wouldn't <laughs> like what I did but yes I, I changed it a lot Okay. Mike Reed is the guy who wrote it okay. it's a fantastic song sort of one that you wish you'd written but uh, uh-huh. I put my stamp on it at the very least and Bonnie Raitt's a long time partner of mine and okay. it should be great song so right. now when you change things up and like put your stamp on it, it ends up becoming a big hit 
as the person who played the piano, do you think you ever get enough credit for that as a musician? Well, actually, Bonnie cut me in on the okay. record financially later on when it became such a big sort of iconic hit for her, and uh, she really felt that what I brought to the to the musical party was substantial. So she uh, she did. So you know, she's a great person. And, That's neat. And there's a good example of it. Yeah, right. Hey, and don't you go anywhere because we'll be right back with more from Bruce Hornsby. Keep it right here with your radio sisters on the Mulberry Lane Show. with singer-songwriter-musician Bruce Hornsby talking about his brand new album, Rehab Reunion. So let's get back with Bruce, chatting about 30 years in the music business. You spent some time as part of The Grateful Dead with Jerry Garcia, and you guys were pretty good friends. So what did you talk about? Were you musically in tune with each other? What was that relationship like? We were very, I think, musically in tune with each other. Before the end of his life, when he was really struggling, he used to call me up and say, can we fly you in and we'll let a piano and will you play with the band just to try to pick him up, pick up his spirits because he seems wow. like he's really down and mm. very listless and hot. So I would do that. I used to phone prank him a lot, so that was always fun. <laughs> what would you do? I had him one time thinking he was talking live on New Orleans radio with the great New Orleans icon, Ernie K. Doe. You know the song, Mother-in-Law? You know that song? She's the meanest woman I know. Mother-in-law, mother-in-law. So yeah, classic. Finally, I let him in on it, and he said, you weasel. So how long did he go without knowing? Well, probably about eight, ten minutes. Oh my gosh. That's pretty good. Yeah, I wish I had it on tape. It would yeah, be a classic. That's, oh, that, that would is be awesome. classic. And then you've also worked and toured with Ricky Skaggs. So you got in touch with the bluegrass side of you. Well, yeah, that wasn't the first time, though. One of my Grammy wins is actually in 1990 for the best bluegrass recording with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band okay. on their record, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, Volume 2. Uh-huh. And Ricky's was also a part of that uh, record, by the way. But we did a, an up-tempo, breakneck tempo bluegrass version of my old song, Valley Road, and it won the Grammy and pissed off all the bluegrass purists that think Bill Monroe should win every year or thought that. <laughs> I don't blame them. I love Bill Monroe, too, but I was proud of our record. And sure. we won, much to the chagrin of the purists. So that was my first foray into the bluegrass world, but yeah, there were a few Yeah, not a bad first later. foray, honestly. So. No, one for one with that. <laughs> when you get an idea for your next project, how do you make your decisions? I'm just looking for inspiration, and when inspiration strikes on a deep level, 
then I just keep going with it. I have this orchestral project that I'm working on with the great classical conductor and provocateur Michael Tilson Thomas, and okay. he's the principal conductor of the San Francisco Symphony and has his own postgraduate program for orchestral helpfuls in Miami Beach called the New World Symphony. Uh-huh. That's something that just came about because he's a fan of this more out-there music that I write on the piano. Okay. And so we did a concert last year, and there's more of that. So that's something that's growing because there's an interest in it. And also, I find it to be a fertile field, a wide-open field, and... Uh, keep mining it in that area so it just never ends I guess and this Dulcimer thing who knows if I keep writing songs that I really like on it and then we'll keep doing that you can all coexist even though they don't have much in common right. they can coexist so now your concert how do you blend all of this together well I've been doing it a long time I feel like I know how to do it how to blend it we don't play with the noisemakers a whole lot of the more modern dissonant thing much to the glee of a lot of the audience really is not ready to receive that. <laughs> but, but last night, for instance, in, in Idaho, we played one of the songs called Life in the Psychotropics. It's about depression, drugs, sort of a tongue-in-cheek song about that. And it, it gets fairly out there. And that was, that was, we got incredible response from that. So you just never know. Yeah, you, yeah, you never know. And you kind of do pretty free-flow concerts. Oh, yeah, we don't have a set list. I haven't had a set list for... 26 years. Okay. We take requests from the audience. Uh, it's pretty loose. I'm just always trying to entertain the band. Okay. We have a great time. We really enjoy what we do. Yeah. It's a great time. It's a big joyful noise and a joyful look, I would say. Oh, that's awesome. You're listening to Bruce Hornsby here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Do you have one or just a couple of career highlights that are personal to you? Well, let's see. Career highlights. Well, my first record, uh, the way it is, broke in England. So all of a sudden we were on this sort of the Johnny Carson or Jay Leno of England. It's called the Terry Wogan Show. It's what they call a chat show over there. Okay. And I was in getting makeup before I learned how to say no to things like that that I hate. So uh, (laughs) all of a sudden I hear this voice coming down the hall. Where's Bruce Hornsby? Where's Bruce Hornsby? Where's Bruce effing Hornsby? <laughs> I thought to myself, oh my God, I think that's Elton John. He walks in, he's got a big Tina Turner wig on that I guess he was going to wear, and he throws his arms around me and says, you know, you're fantastic, whatever. So that was, of course, an amazing... Wow. What a moment. Early moment, yeah. And there's yeah. so many like that. Uh-huh. That's a funny one. That's a good one. That's a good awesome one. one. And probably very surreal at that moment in time for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, speaking of surreal, okay, we've been writing this musical, musical play, and for a while, it's not in the play anymore, but for a while we had a song called The Dawn of Dawns. We wrote it in about 2009, and it was a song about Donald Trump. From, and I ran from Donald 2009. Trump way pre-presidential uh, aspirations. So I do a lot of film work for Spike Lee. So one of the perks of working for Spike is you get to go to some of the New York Knicks games and it's courtside seats with Spike. So I'm going around the basketball uh, stanchion, going to my seat, and I see Donald Trump standing there with the Knicks owner. So I thought, this is my chance. I walk up to him and say, hi, Mr. Trump, I'm Bruce Hornsby, and we're writing this play, and we have a song about you. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> so he said, yeah, go ahead. So talk about surreal. I'm just standing there singing this song to Donald Trump about him. And afterwards, he reaches in his wallet and hands me not one but two business cards and says, when you hit New York... Give me a call. This I gotta see. That was classically surreal. That is classically surreal. So, did you uh, ever call him up? (laughs) Never made it to New York. It's pretty tough to make it to New York, and we have been found wanting so far. Not with the music, but with our book, our script. Okay. We're dogged and determined. We're still working at it, and so we'll see what happens. But that was another, you you talk about surreal surreal moments. Absolutely. It made me think of that, and that was definitely a surreal one. (laughs) 
Well, and fascinating the way things have turned out. You've had quite an original journey. Yes, I've had a, quite a singular journey, very unique, and uh, really fulfilling. The phone hasn't stopped ringing for 30 years, so oh. I cannot complain. From Donald Trump to Ricky Skaggs, yes. <laughs> You've got it all covered. You might be the only person who can say that. <laughs> yes, likely Michael Wilson Thomas. Right. It's, uh, it's a broad range, and it's beautiful. Yes. All right, well, Bruce, thank you so much for sharing your career with us. Love hearing more about it. Nice talking to you guys, or to you, you ladies. Appreciate it. Bruce Hornsby, a part of your weekend right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Keep hanging out with us. We'll be right back with Jake Shimabukuro, ukulele sensation. It's all about the strings today. Song came and went like the times that we spent hiding out from the rain under the carpet. Your weekend getaway. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. If you mix the ukulele and Nashville, what do you think you'd get? Well, you don't have to answer that. Ukulele virtuoso Jake Shimabukuro already did. You've met the Jimi Hendrix of the ukulele here before, and he's back to chat about his six-day session in Nashville that birthed his latest album, Nashville Sessions. Welcome, welcome to the show. Jake Shimabukuro. I love it. I love that. That was awesome. We got it right. Shimabukuro. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) So, Jake, it's great to have you back on the show. And we have to know when the ukulele goes to Nashville, what happens? As you know, Nashville is the home of songwriters. So I basically wanted to fly out to Nashville you know, take my ukulele and I, you know, put myself in a new environment and just get, you know, inspired and write some new material. So actually this record is my first all original album. It's called Nashville Sessions. You know, we rented a studio in Nashville and I got together with two great studio session players there, Nolan Burner and Evan Hutchins, the drums and bass. Okay. And all we did was we just jammed for six days. Now, what time did you get to the studio in the morning? We'd get in about 10 or 11 in the morning, and we'd go to about 10 or 11 at night, and then I'd go back, you know, to the hotel and just kind of write some new tunes and then come back the next morning and present it to the guys, and they'd contribute and be like, oh, man, that's cool. What if we did this and this? And, and then we just kind of track live, and then we did some overdubs, and, and that was it. So now, did you actually arrange the pieces, or did you just record the jam sessions and then put those together? <laughs> We kind of would arrange them as we played them. Okay. You know, we'd do like maybe two or three passes, you know, and be like, oh, let's go back to the B section here and then we'll just kind of, you know, open it up and kind of see what happens. You know, so you was know, the pace like a song a day? It was like two songs and sometimes three songs a day. It was really great. I never approached a recording, you know, that way. A lot of times I'd go in with all my music 
written and you know we'd have charts and all that but this time we went in with no charts no music and it was really interesting because you know when the songs are so fresh you know and you're playing them and recording them there's still that inspired uh, rawness you know, behind yeah. it right so it, it was really cool man I, I really dug this record and, and you know you mentioned the Jimi Hendrix thing but it I think with this album people will for the first time really hear my rock influence so yeah, Nashville brought out the rock influence yeah definitely I got a lot more experimental in the studio you know utilizing more effects playing through different kinds of amplification bringing in some overdrive some distortion things like that so you know it's definitely not your normal ukulele record you know and it's not country it's not country you know there's some country influence to it of course but there's a lot of jazz influence a lot of classical influence a lot of you know blues and and a lot of rock influence for sure so so hopefully people who dig kind of the classic rock stuff you know or like jam band progressive Mm -hmm. rock stuff i think this would be more along the lines of what they're used to Ukulele icon Jake Shimabukuro here on the Mulberry Lane Show talking about his latest album, Nashville Sessions. Were you surprised at where you took the ukulele here? Oh, definitely. Yeah, this is such a departure, you know, from anything that I've done before. And, and it's things that kind of happen, you know, at the live show. And I think that's kind of what inspired this record. That's why we kind of went in with nothing prepared. We wanted there to be a lot of spontaneity and a lot of improvisation, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. like the live shows, but in a studio setting, which is really hard to do sometimes, you know, because you don't have your audience there and it's a different kind of energy. Mm -hmm. That's something that always frustrated me is, you know, during a live performance, you know, I play a certain way, but as soon as I get into the studio, I feel so stiff, you know, and it's like I can't play the way I or I'm sure it's the same for you guys you know when you go into the studio you just kind of overthink things right and you're concentrated on the technique of it rather than the performance of it yes exactly that's exactly it so now in this kind of jam feel were you able to overcome that you feel I definitely feel that on this record I was able to perform you know like it was a live show and that's something that I've never been able to do before the studio was just so comfortable mm-hmm. and I think because the music was so fresh and it was so raw mm-hmm. you didn't have time to overthink it you right. know you just was like okay well yeah well let's just see what happens it was you in know, the moment yeah. yeah so now from your perspective when you listen back to this album what do you hear that you like versus your other albums yeah what I love about this record when I listen to it and I listen to my playing I can tell that I'm discovering as I'm playing, you know, mm. I'm discovering something new and okay. I'm going for different things. There's a couple songs, you know, that just kind of naturally went into these longer jam sessions. There's a song called Six Eight on there where we just basically had an A section and a B section and we didn't know what we were going to do in the middle, but it turned into like the seven and a half minute jam. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, uh-huh. so it was just so much fun. And then there's another song called Kilauea on the record and Kilauea was the name of the active volcano in Hawaii. Okay. And that song was inspired by Eddie Van Halen's Eruption. Oh, you know, yeah. the first time I heard Van Halen play Eruption, I was like, what is that? How is he getting all that sound on the, on the guitar? And I kind of wanted to create something like that for the ukulele, you know. So the idea was bringing out all these different eclectic sounds out of the instrument, you know, like this big, huge eruption, you know, at the end. 
just played things on, on that tune that I had never played before. In fact, now that we're touring, we have to play it live. I had to go back and try to relearn that <laughs> piece. From your recording? It was like the hardest thing. I was like, wait, how did I play that? You, know, you should have given yourself forever. a YouTube video of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 So now you keep taking this four-string simple instrument in new directions and places that no one would ever believe it could go. So what has the ukulele taught you about itself? Oh, man. It's very limited physically, right? You know, because right. you only have four strings, so two less strings than a guitar. You have a very limited range. It's only two octaves. But I tell people, if you're a carpenter, right, and you have every tool known to man at your fingertips, then, of course, you can get any job done, right? Because right. you have all the other tools. But the thing is, you know, if you don't have a million tools and you you have like maybe a dozen or a handful, then sometimes you have to use that wrench as a hammer. You know, you got to uh-huh. figure out creative ways, you know, when you have less strings, you know, each string and, you know, each note that you play and, you know, you got to use them in creative ways. It's almost like the limitations set you free. Yeah, yeah, in a way, definitely, you know, it kind of forces you to to be more creative, uh, to just get more out of something very simple. I have a feeling you like that challenge. I do. I love it. I love that challenge. And and I I love playing the instrument, you know, because I was born and raised in Hawaii. And, you know, it's a big part of the culture there. And it's just nice to be able to kind of share a little bit of that with people, you know, all over the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Jake, it's always great to catch up with you. The new album is called Nashville Sessions. Check it out. And Jake, thanks for joining our show. Oh, thanks for your time. That's ukulele master Jake Shimabukuro here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Here's the taste of Nashville Sessions by Jake Shimabukuro. And we'll be right back with Grammy-nominated lute player Ron McFarlane. you covered the mulberry lane show now here's mulberry lane well you can call it the renaissance of a renaissance instrument first popular in the western world in the 1300s the lute is cool again now bringing the iconic stringed instrument back into the mainstream music scene is grammy nominated lutenist ron mcfarlane and you're going to meet ron and hear all about the cultural history of this unique instrument Welcome, welcome to the show, Ron McFarlane. Thank you. I haven't been welcomed like that before, ever. Oh, glad (laughs) to hear it. Okay, so now, Ron, you originally were a classical guitarist. So now you switched to the lute. So when did that happen, and what attracted you to the lute? Well, even before I was a classical guitarist, I was a rock guitarist, like a jillion other teenagers. What attracted me to the lute was it combined some of the things that I loved about rock guitar. Okay, now you and, don't and typically rock. think of a lute and rock guitar in the same category. You don't, you don't, <laughs> but it really does have some parallels because what I loved about rock music and just popular music or folk music generally is 
it has a lot of rhythmic propulsion. Uh-huh. We have a chance for improvising. Sure. It's, it's very direct in the way it, it shows its expression. But classical music has a sort of elevated quality and a real range of emotions that's very, very broad. Okay. And I love that as well. With the lute, and especially with Renaissance music, oh, say around 1600 or so, I found that there wasn't the dividing line between classical music, or what we call classical music nowadays, and the popular music of the time, which had a lot of propulsion, a chance for improvisation, and a directness that really reminded me of the rock music that I was playing as a teenager. Interesting. How did you discover that? Really, it was after I got into the music and began playing with the group. We were playing more of the folk tunes of the time, and I just found that even the musical scales were the same scales that I used playing blues in like classic rock tunes. It was very familiar to me from my teenage rock background. It also, I think, taught me not to be afraid of improvising, okay. which I think a lot of classical players have a little bit of hesitation there because it's not a part of their training. More restrained on the classical side. Right. You look at some of the old descriptions of what lute players were doing, there are some that were very elevated and very restrained, but some of them were not restrained at all. You have teachers writing, well, you shouldn't play tricks with the lute, like playing it behind your back or behind your neck. And you realize that people were doing all kinds of things with the lute back then. Back then? Wow. So now someone who's not familiar with the lute, how would you describe its sound? It has a bit of the sound of a guitar combined with the sound of maybe a harp, a mandolin, and a banjo. If you can kind of put all those sounds together, but of course it really has its own unique voice that's really not quite any of those. Okay. So now it's also very complementary to the human singing voice. You know. Absolutely. And One thing, it can change its dynamic and change its color in a way that reflects what we can do with the human voice. And especially back in the 16th century, that isn't something that most instruments could do. A lot of instruments were sort of on or off. You had the note, or then you don't have the note. But with the lute, you have a lot of color, a lot of nuance that's literally at your fingertips. Learning all about the lute and the Grammy-nominated musician who gets it to sing. Ron McFarlane here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Okay, now you've composed many songs for the lute. As far as composing on the lute versus composing on or for the guitar, what are the differences there? Well, one thing is a lute has more strings. One lute that I play has 24 strings and another one has 19 strings. So it has a range that goes deeper into the bass than the guitar does. You got some busy fingers. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So now, do do you consider yourself a new age lutenist or where are you in the spectrum i think i'm i sort of bridge a few different spectrums because i definitely play the old music i love playing medieval renaissance and baroque music and that's really how i started out but after playing that music for maybe 20 years or so i started to branch out and began writing some of my own music because i could see that the lute could do more than just play music from four or five hundred years ago it seemed like a really sensitive and articulate instrument that could play music from right now. So I began writing music. I suppose some of it might sound like folk music, like Celtic music. Some of it definitely sounds more like New Age music. A whole range of styles that really reflects all the different kinds of music that I love. You don't limit yourself, basically. Exactly. Do you do any covers of more modern music as well? 
A little bit. You know, I'm actually working on some covers that I haven't brought out yet. Okay. That's to be brought out pretty soon. All right. But I'm really enjoying that. Now, taking on an instrument like the lute, when it's really not that mainstream, did that open more doors for you as far as kind of building a career around it, or did you find more doors closing? You know, it worked both ways, because obviously there are not that many lute players out there. So for someone who wants a lute player, I guess I'm one of the few. But the demand, especially when I was starting out, is also pretty small. Or most people don't wake up in the morning and think, okay, you know, today's the day for lute. Um, I think when people hear it, they tend to be drawn in and really entranced. But I think a lot of my job has been sort of like a missionary and bringing the music out there so that folks can hear it for the first time and hear how magnetic it can be. Okay, so Ron, you often tour with your ensemble. So tell us a little bit about the ensemble and what people can hear from those performances. That's right. That's Earhart, A-Y-R-E-H-E-A-R-T. And we're doing a program of English, Welsh, and Scottish music. And this is all old music. The, The program kind of explores a cross-section of music from that time, and especially the art music or classical music of that time versus the folk music of that time. We're doing some tunes that might be familiar to listeners nowadays. One of them is John Barleycorn, which was made famous by a rock band named Traffic, sung by Steve Winwood back around 1970. I used to play that in high school, but had no idea it had its roots going back about 400 years ago. So we kind of bring that back to its Renaissance roots. Then there's another tune called Nottoman Town, an old English medieval tune. But Bob Dylan, when he heard that, borrowed the melody and wrote his famous song, Masters of War, to that tune. So if you know Bob Dylan's Masters of War, then you know the tune for Nottoman Towns. Wow, very interesting. Now, do you talk to the audience and explain a lot of the history of the lute during the concert? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay, so definitely. you can learn about the lute as well. Ron, where can people That's find right. out more about you? You look at my website at ronmcfarlane.com. That's R-O-N-N. M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E dot com. And that's Ron with two N's. That's correct. And McFarlane, coming from a group named Mulberry Lane, we're glad it's not Ron McFarlane. We're glad it's Ron McFarlane. (laughs) I'm glad to. (laughs) Right in. Well, Ron, we want to thank you for chatting with us today. So fascinating to hear about the loot in your career. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Grammy-nominated lute player. Thanks for enlightening our show with this cool renaissance instrument. Who else do we need to thank, Allie? We gotta say thanks to Bruce Hornsby. Bruce, thanks for sharing your album made entirely on the dulcimer with us today. Love your philosophy that going to a simpler instrument can really expand your creativity. Great nuggets of wisdom today, girls. Mm -hmm. Gotta get his latest album, Rehab Reunion, Bruce Hornsby, and the Noisemakers. Who else, girls? Well, then we gotta give a big radio shout-out to Jake Shimabukuro. Of course, you can do things with the ukulele. 
that defy many of the principles of physics and music. Thanks for bringing your new album today, your creative process, and your ability to expand what's possible. Yeah, you guys, go download Jake Shimabukuro's new album. It's called Nashville Sessions. So we hope you guys enjoyed our themed show today, all about the stringed instruments, the lute, the dulcimer, and the ukulele. And join us next weekend where there'll be more music, more lifestyle, and more exploring of the creative arts and the creative process right here with your radio sisters. We'll be waiting for you. Join us same time, same place next weekend on The Mulberry Lane Show. Yep, let's do it again. Bo, stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. Woo! 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 Woo!